0: I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey, everyone, as you will hear in this podcast, Sonia Hoel Perkins is one of my closest friends, and it's really great when I get to be able to have people who I know so well for decades and who I admire so much, not just personally, but also professionally, and who are also involved with art as guests on the podcast. So I know that you are going to really enjoy the wisdom that she brings to the conversation. And because we've known each other such a long time, she also asked some questions of me, which is great, because these are conversations. We will get there in just a second. I don't know about you, but I get most of my things done in the spaces between doing everything else. And I gravitate towards the things I can handle from an app on my phone. Kelly Klee Private Client Insurance believes that people with more to lose need better protection for what they cherish. I have insured not only my cars and homes with them, but also my personal art collection. They have an incredibly well-designed app that's not only aesthetic, but the user interface is superb. I can see each work in my collection and its currently insured value, as well as seamlessly and easily, literally from my phone, add new things as they're acquired. Insurance to me sounds like kind of a boring thing to talk about, but particularly in these uncertain times, I sleep way better at night knowing that the things I love are protected. So check out their website, Kellyclee.com backslash Heidi, that's K-E-L-L-Y- k-l-e-e dot com backslash heidi and they will make a 50 dollar donation to artadia an art charity i've recommended for each qualified referral these details are included in the show notes is there a piece of jewelry you would like to create i'm excited to tell you about best and co which offers a smarter way to acquire luxury jewelry i wanted to create signet rings for each member of my family Best & Co. worked with me to create a custom design and fabricate the rings. We all love them. The rings are a daily and physical reminder of our connection, even when we're not together. Whether you want to reuse sentimental stones from a family heirloom, or create a piece that you've been dreaming about, Best & Co. can help you create it, and their effective and efficient business model allows them to provide significant savings to their clients. Clients regularly save as much as 30% and frequently more when compared with purchasing comparable high quality pieces from traditional luxury jewelry retailers. So check out their website, www.bestandcoaspen.com and use discount code HEIDI2020 to receive 5% off of any item on Best Co's website. I was just looking at it today and honestly, there are a ton of things that I would like to use that discount code for. Also, if you're interested in creating a custom piece, you can email custom at bestandcoaspen.com. That's B-E-S-T-A-N-D-C-O-A-S-P-E-N.com. And mention that you heard about Best & Co. on my podcast to receive the special discount. Sonia Hoel Perkins invests in people and companies that matter. She's the founder of the Perkins Fund, Project Glimmer, and Broadway Angels. Project Glimmer inspires every girl to envision and realize her empowered future. Broadway Angels is a network of top female venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. Sonia has been a venture capitalist for over 30 years and was named one of the top most powerful people in global finance. Sonia serves on the boards of Mercy Bioanalytics, Project Glimmer, the Pristine Mind Foundation, and the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. She and I discuss being included, letting your mind rest, happiness as a choice, being honorable, trusting your gut, buying art that hurts a little bit, not needing to be the expert, how hard work is a habit, A sense of connected decisions, paying attention, being kind to yourself, and how your number one advocate is yourself. Good morning, Sonia. Super glad to be talking with you today
1: morning. Great to see you
0: or hear you. I was thinking about getting to chat with you today in this way in which our conversation is being shared with an audience. And we've known each other a long time. I, I'm not even sure exactly how long. And I've benefited so much from your friendship and your wisdom and your guidance. And in kind of prepping for the conversation today, I was thinking about how I wanted to start, and I really can't do anything other than start where I am, and I was thinking today about the fact that we haven't seen each other in 16 months, other than on you know Zoom and, and whatnot, and how many things have happened in this time and, and how many challenges there have been, and I wanted to ask you if we could start off by talking about what are some of the things that you do to kind of modulate stress and difficulty and how do you ground yourself? How do you bring yourself to a place of being comfortable when things really aren't very comfortable?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I was really lucky. Um, About 20 years ago, I met a man named origin Wang, who is a Rinpoche from Tibet, believe it or not. Um, I purchased a house in the Napa Valley and he um, used to have meditation retreats there uh, with the former owner, and um, there was a, a sign in Sanskrit above the door, and it said, House of Wisdom. So when I asked the former owner of the house, what was that about? He said, oh, yeah, we have these retreats with this Rinpoche. And I said, well, I'm not going to be using this house very much because I have a full time job in San Francisco. So you guys are welcome to use the house anyway, and just just include me in, in the in the um the retreats and so I started going to these retreats and I learned how to meditate but I also learned kind of really basic fundamental buddhism principles without even being a buddhist like about how to be compassionate and how to be kind and and I learned very much is that happiness is really a choice and we get to choose our happiness and you know there's always going to be problems and issues and things, uh, around us. But if we determined, uh, our happiness based on what was going right or what wasn't going right, you know, we would probably always be unhappy. And so I learned that about 20 years ago. And, and then I also learned to meditate and, you know, meditation is about letting your mind rest. And, um, you know, Rinpoche talks about, you know, a Muddy glass of water, when you shake it all up, it's, it's hard to see through. It's not clear at all. But then if you just let that glass of water uh, rest, it becomes clear. And I think your mind is the same way. And so, you know, this pandemic and the stay at home and, you know, the election that just recently occurred and, you know, all the things that were making people very uneasy and, and upsetting, I just reminded myself that, you know, happiness is a choice. And I, and I, I I like to say may obstacles arise as allies. And when there's tough things in life, you can look at it as an opportunity to, to change or make things better, or to see something about yourself that you didn't know. And so to be perfectly honest, this year was actually Mm -hmm. a good one. Um, you know, I got to spend a lot of time with my family. Um, I didn't travel nearly as much if at all because of the restrictions. And so, um, you know, I just just reminded myself to choose happiness and to to look at the positive and and I think my personality is is naturally like that so it, it suits me well, I guess. I don't think everyone's personality is like that, but it just kind of fits with me.
0: I love that. And how often do you have to remind yourself of that? Do you just know it all the time or does um, it ebb and flow only, a little bit?
1: I think probably in The beginning, I probably had to remind myself, but I think now it's just a natural thing, and and I think my husband is naturally like that too. Like I, I I tell tell him he's a natural Buddhist. He doesn't go to any of these retreats or anything, but he's just naturally that way. And and then I think our daughter is probably a combination of us. (laughs) So,
0: so interesting. What would you say matters most to you in the world?
1: Well, I mean, I would say family and friends and relationships. Um, I very much value you and my friends. Um, I think that's, it's kind of a given, um, but I also value hard work. I value honesty, um, fairness, kindness, health, fun is high on the list. You know, there's Mm -hmm. so many things, um, uh, but I think being an honorable person is is very um important to me as well.
0: Can you talk about some of the experiences that led you to your career? You have had such an impressive and impactful career as a woman in venture capital in Silicon Valley. And it's one of the things that you know we've connected on is this idea of how you can be both and, right? I, I remember. One of the first times we met, I was so impressed by all the things that you had accomplished, all the things you were able to see that other people couldn't see professionally and in terms of opportunities for technology and, and the future. And I loved the fact that you also loved fashion and art and fun. <laughs> Those are <laughs> I think first. We even talked about People Magazine. And I know. I, just... <laughs> I love reading People Magazine. As do I. And and when we met, I, I hadn't actually met very many people that I would say had those kind of interests that were really in alignment with mine as well.
1: Well, I also, I mean, the reason why I read People Magazine is I want to know what everyone else is reading. You know, you want to be, you don't want to be out of it with the world, right? You don't want to be some mm-hmm. ivory tower intellectual or something like that and not know who Kanye West is or something like that. So... Um, but my career was kind of an interesting one. Um, you know, obviously, it ended up very well. Um, you know, was a partner at a very large venture fund and have made some really outstanding investments as a venture capitalist in a really um, competitive field. But it didn't start out that way. It, it basically started out when I was at the University of Virginia, and my parents um, were very kind and paid for my education, but they didn't pay for any of my spending money. And um, I needed to work and I wanted to go to Europe after college because I felt like I'd grown up in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I um, had gone to school there. And so I wanted a little bit more education that required not being at home. So going to Europe for six months seemed to be a good, a good thing to do after college. And so in order to do that, I had to get some jobs. And I figured out that the most lucrative jobs as a student was to work as a computer programmer as well as in um, in the troubleshooting lab because comp- PC computings were, computers were just coming out and you got $8 an hour doing that instead of $4 an hour working at the gym. And so I, I did that and then um, went to Europe. And one of the reasons why I went to Europe is I didn't get any job offers after graduating from UVA, which was in 1988, because in 1987, there was a big stock market crash. And it's probably like a time like now where there's young people weren't getting jobs. And so um, when I came back to the United States, I moved to Boston and I decided I wanted to be um, in a field that I looked at an entire company instead of just a part of a company. So I didn't want to just do marketing or sales or finance. I wanted to do something that was what I thought would be strategic. And I narrowed it down to venture capital and and management consulting. And I got a job as a venture capitalist uh, because I'd had PC experience and the venture industry was just starting to invest in PC software. And before they were just doing mainframe and mid-range computing. And, you know, while my experience today would be very little compared to, you know, a, a computer programmer or something like that, it was very, um, relevant at the time because very little was known about the PC. And so the job I got was an entry-level job. And I think for women, it's probably the best to get an entry-level job because it's not a lot of risk if the person doesn't work out and people are willing to take a risk on an entry-level job. And so my job was to cold call companies and I would cold call you know, American software companies. And I was looking for companies that were growing really rapidly and also... um, profitable. And then once I found one, I tried to convince them to raise venture capital and convince them the, the benefits of that. And I was very good at it. Um, I found three companies that all went public, including one that's been in the news lately, McAfee Associates. And you know, I talked to John McAfee um, in 1990, 1990 or 1991, and he was just about to sell a company to Symantec, and I convinced him otherwise. Um, And that was an incredible deal, which helped me get the next job and then the job
0: after that. When you were looking at these companies and evaluating what you thought would be interesting, relevant, what do you look for? It's a kind of maybe similar question to what people ask me in terms of how I choose the artists that I choose. What are you looking for? How much is intuition? How much is research? Just talk right. a little bit about well, that evaluation. I think
1: mine is a lot more straightforward <laughs> than yours. I don't know <laughs> how you pick your artist. and I want to ask you that question after I answer for you. Um, I look for a big market. To be perfectly honest, um, uh, a very large market, and 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 I look for a problem that isn't solved by existing solutions. But if there was a solution that could fix that big problem. Um, it would it would sell a lot of products, um, and so, you know, an example of that, um, you know, is McAfee, right? So there weren't any viruses written for PCs; they were all written for Macs in the early days, which is kind of strange when you think mm-hmm. about it today. And then all of a sudden, there was a virus written for a PC, and nobody had any software that protected their personal computers, and that was a huge market. Um, recently, or I'd say maybe four or five years ago, I started investing in Bitcoin and and cryptocurrency related types of companies. Partly because I thought, well, if you could disrupt money, that's got to be a really big market, right? And there's also the issue with identity, where um, there's so much fraud because people don't know the origin origin of something like an art, or um, you know people's ide- identities. And I think the blockchain helps solve that. So if you if that worked out, it could be big. And so that's kind of how I look at it. A lot of people, they talk about management teams and founders, which I think are important, but I don't think it's the number one criteria because you could have a great founder in a terrible market and that's it. Is just it just won't work. So um, years ago, Harvard Business School interviewed four different venture capitalists, including myself, and they wrote a case about what do you look for when analyzing a company? And I just said, market, 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 market. That's it. And, and my favorite kinds of companies are companies that are doing well despite themselves. So they have a really big market. They might have an okay product, maybe not the best management team. And somehow they're just selling tons of whatever it is they're selling. Like the early firewall companies were that way, where they were protecting networks from bad people and, and, um, and things like that. So that's a great sign of a market. And so a lot of people would turn down a company that didn't have a stellar CEO, even though it was growing really rapidly because of that reason. And I would never do that. Those are my favorite because you can fix those things. And so so how do you you pick an artist?
0: (laughs) You know, I had a guest on the podcast a few weeks ago who is an economist and specializes in the art market. And he was using data analytics to talk about how, to be a successful artist and just wrote a book on the topic and pretty controversial, I think, within the art field, particularly because he said some things like spend less time in the studio, market yourself. It's all about your connections. And our field, the art field is more of kind of a soft field, I would say. And I am really interested in data and how those two things can potentially intersect. And my choices have to do, I think, with Really, yeah, knowing kind of where things will go. So, I think that part of what I do is trend identification as well. Mm -hmm. And within the museum field, brand building. But I'm interested in something that I've never seen before, something that surprises me, something that might even make me a little bit uncomfortable. But that element of surprise, that kind of stopping me in the continuum of time and space. That's makes me curious to know more, and it's not always necessarily something that I like, you know. But it but it's something that that I want to that I want to yeah learn learn a bit more about. And for me, it comes with you know twenty five years of looking at art and a super broad knowledge of what's happened before, and then also a kind of a gut feeling and intuition, something mm-hmm. that is surprising.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have to say intuition and gut really does play a big part of venture capital as well. I mean, definitely. And, you know, for me, I find because I see literally hundreds of opportunities to invest every year or maybe even more than that. And um, I find that the ones that I'm most excited about are the ones that are the best deals. So if I'm willing to, you know, when I did this deal called F5, years ago and it was one of the first load balancing companies which is now a public company worth somewhere between 10 and 12 billion i haven't checked lately and um and the founder was going to come in and meet me at my office but he just blew me off he didn't he didn't show up so instead of being upset about it i called him and i said hey well i'd love to come see you anyway and he said well there is my my legal team is in a few hours away drive from you um you can just go meet them. So I did. And um, then I was on the plane the next Monday and had him come in and present to the partners and we did the deal. And so it was just, I just got off my behind and drove four hours that day just so I could talk to him about his company. And it turned out to be a pretty good deal. And I don't do that very often.
0: So there are two things about that story, which I think are really important to underscore. One is the idea of trusting your gut. The other is I've said for, there are a couple of artists that I tried to to do projects with who had said no to me. And it wasn't that then I wanted it to be about the chase, but I was just really committed to being able to share their work with a broad audience. I really was interested in it and didn't take it personally that they had said no before. Are there other instances where you have, yeah, had to look away from maybe first treatment or an unintended slight to really make something happen?
1: I'm sure. I'm sure there are, um, you know, an ego is part of that, part of the teachings from Rinpoche too, right? Like that's, yeah. that can get in your way. And so sometimes when I get super mad about something, I'm like, wait a second, is this my ego? <laughs> <It> usually. <laughs> is, right? um, and sometimes it's okay. to let it get away. But, um, but I, I try, I try not to, 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 let my ego get in the way. But at the same time, in you know, the olden days when an entrepreneur said, Hey, I don't want to talk to an analyst or an associate. I want to talk to the partner. And then the analyst would tell me or the associate and I'd say, you know what? No need to call them back. You know, like that's not the kind of person I want to work with anyway. Right. So, right, right. You know, so sometimes you do like you, know, you
0: stand up for your people. Yes, for sure. So okay. let's talk about art for a minute. Mm-hmm. How did you first get interested in art and how would you how would you share what interests you about art?
1: Well, it's interesting. So I grew up in a European household. My mother grew up in Oslo, Norway, and her grand, she was an only child. So her grandfather had a really amazing art collection. Um, probably not you know to your standard heidi but you know they had beautiful oil paintings in their house and and my mother ha- had them all in, in our house so i grew up with beautiful oil oil paintings um my whole childhood and i think that really had an effect on me um i just loved love the art and so as i grew up and started making my own money um i would buy art and i would try to buy art so it hurt a little bit and um mm. and and just because I just I just loved it and and wanted to do my own collection, so early early on, I was buying pop art um, in the late eighties and early nineties um, and photography. And I still buy photography because it's I think it's still affordable. Uh, pop art is no longer affordable, although I'm happy that I did buy some. Um, and then I fell in love with abstract impressionist artists, um, especially Bay Area. Um, and I had a friend who kind of was a, worked for a a really great gallery and she helped me uh, buy some, I think some really nice pieces. Um, but then I became more interested in, um, African-American artists. And I think you probably helped with this influence where, you know, I met, um, or I've seen the work of of Kara Walker, or I did meet Carrie James Marshall and Kahende Wild, and um, and then uh, Mark Bradford, and just really loved the way they told the narrative um, about um, black society and and rights, and I really believe that our country owes a lot to the black Americans and our country, especially those who were enslaved and the descendants. And I just love that they were using art to express their opinions. And I remember seeing um, the Mount Vernon piece and the Monticello um, piece at the SF MoMA, they had these two murals on the walls. And I was just blown away by the, the story of these being plantations and places where there were slaves versus these, you know, antebellum type, you know, things. So I just, and I grew up in Virginia. So that's probably why Kara Walker and Kerry James Marshall really speak to me. Um, And then I guess I will say some people might think this is embarrassing or, or not. I, I don't, but I was super influenced by going to the Bellagio hotel in Las Vegas when it opened because the ceiling there was covered with glass, and it was glass by Dale Chihuly. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. And we got to meet him and ended up getting a piece installed in our house. And, and I tell kids, like, my daughter is in an art class. And so they come and they, they study Dale Chihuly every. Every year, and I let them come to the class, and I tell them that everybody thought Dale Chihuly was just a crafts person, and you know he wasn't really a real artist because he he was just blowing glass. But then he had a show at the De Young, which was the first major museum show he ever had, which kind of put him in the category of fine art. But then the art critic from the San Francisco Chronicle panned it. It was the worst, you know, critic he could have ever gotten. And the kids are always like so upset about it. And they're like, oh, no. And then I say, but more people attended that exhibit than any other art exhibit ever at the D. Young. And they are like, yay, right? So they were exposed to this art. And it's really approachable. And it's pretty but it also opens people's eyes to art. And I probably like street artists the same way, you know, like Barry McGee and, and I love Finch. She's my new favorite street artist Um, because again, they're opening the eyes of others who wouldn't maybe already see the art.
0: So interesting because like Finch in particular and to like there's a lightness to the work, you Mm -hmm. know, there's a, a happiness to it. And, it connects back, I guess, to the first question that I asked you about how you manage existence, really. And right. you talked about the choice of being happy. And so to choose to surround yourself with art objects that also have that lightness to them, that, that grace. Mm-hmm. That those are words that I think about in association with you as well.
1: Well, I remember when I first went to the Frick Museum. And um, I think it's that museum where the um the owner of the collection said he only wanted happy pieces. He didn't want, mm-hmm. you know, at the time there was heads on trays and v- wars and violence and blood. And he's like, I, I just don't want that kind of art. I just want the happy pieces. And I'm like, I think I'm in that category too. <laughs> so yeah. 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 And maybe that's why well, I like art so early on. Cause it just was happy.
0: Yeah. What kind of advice do you have for people if they ask you, how to get started in collecting?
1: Well, I think with any way, anything, how to get started with anything is you just have to start, right? <laughs> um, and and just buy something and, um, and go to art shows, go to galleries. A lot of cities, hopefully soon, will open up their Thursday nights or Monday nights or whenever they open up the galleries and just start looking at art. And then if you see something you like, buy it. I mean I I feel really grateful to you Heidi because um you have enabled me to travel the world with you and go to shows with you and you bring your critical commentary along with it so I'm like, I've like learned through osmosis just hanging out with you and I've probably learned so much more about art just seeing art with you than um any other way of learning about art and and so I would recommend for people to to go with a friend who knows a little bit more about art than they do. And, and, and don't, and don't, again, it's ego, right? Don't let your ego get in the way. Like I've decided, especially with the arts and opera and, you know, anything that has to do with being creative that I don't have to be the expert. Like I don't have to know the name of the artist or I don't have to know what year he was born or she was born, or I don't have to know the composer of the opera as long as I'm enjoying it. That's okay. Right. So I've decided not to beat myself up if I'm not the absolute expert and, and why that you can be much more freed in the way you approach things.
0: So good. So good. So all of the listeners can already tell like why you're one of my closest friends. (laughs) What about advice for women entering the workforce and hoping to have a I I wanna say work-life balance. And I'm I'm really cognizant that we're speaking in June of 2021 and there's, I think, really interesting market forces now post pandemic about what people feel like working means. And I didn't think that I was gonna bring this up, but I was talking about this last night with my son and I'm just curious your sense on, on this overall topic, I guess. On work-life balance or working? Work-life balance and work-life balance first, I guess. And then, and then we can talk about being a woman in the field, but also curious your sense of what work means now in 2021 and, and what we might see moving forward.
1: Yeah. So I, um, I hate to say this. Um, I am not a big believer in work life balance. Um, I think it balances out over time, but in the beginning of your career, um, working hard really matters. It it I I totally I, agree with you. I totally you agree. Know, I you know, I always say hard work is a habit. I constantly tell my daughter, hard work is a habit, hard work is a habit, yeah. but it really is a habit and it doesn't even matter like. Even if it's not the job, it's whatever. Maybe you're babysitting somebody at their house, or you're, or you're just helping somebody clean up their kitchen after dinner. It's just whatever the work is. Make make sure that you that the hard work is a habit. But but for me, I think if you're early on in your career, you should work as much and as hard as you can. And I think it's a real differentiator today because I do think that there is a lot of trend towards having work life balance as soon as you enter the work field force. Yeah. So there's a lot less competition. Like when I joined TA Associates, we were all fighting to get there before 7 a.m. And nobody ever left after 7 p.m., you know, I mean before 7 p.m. And so that was kind of a contest of badge of honor who could get in the office first, right? And who would leave last. Right. And right. and um and people notice that they do. But then I think over time, um, you know so in your 20s you're learning you're absolutely learning work for the smartest people and and just absorb what you can learn from other people and watching them work and then i think when you're in your 30s that's when you start to formulate your own strategies and and really come up with your own opinions and you can be very very valuable to your company or your field and then your 40s you can have other people kind of do that kind of work for you and you could just use your wisdom to help guide you know That and you don't have to work as hard. Um, And then your fifties, I think you should, you should, you should, you should have a lot more balance because I mean I'm actually a big believer in living every day and enjoying every day. And um, you know, but I think if you if you can if you can be successful early on in your career, your life later is so much easier because if you. Kind of phone it in or do it halfway early on, your whole life is going to be a struggle. It really will be. Um, because you'll be trying to get the next job and there'll be more competition and you won't get the right money that you think you deserve. And it'll just be a, a tough, tough slog.
0: That is such important wisdom to share. And it reminds me, and I've talked about this before, but of the idea of compound interest. And I feel like if one thing could be imparted to people as as they're retaining knowledge is the idea of compound interest, not just financially, Mm -hmm. but metaphorically too.
1: Yeah. A friend
0: of mine, if you don't do that stuff early. mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. A friend of mine once put it this way, saying that you shouldn't look at each task or each decision as one decision, um, but you should really look at it as a series of decisions that are connected. Right. So, you know, that one job, that one day might be meaningless the next day. But if you look at it as a series of, of, of things that are connected there, it's
0: incredibly meaningful. Yeah. And, and that was actually very similar to some insight into meditation that I got from a friend of mine where I was really stuck on this idea of having to meditate 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening. And I, I'm not really a rule follower and rigidity you know, doesn't doesn't work for me. And I was not being successful with it. And then a friend of mine said, you know, meditation is cumulative. Every minute that you do adds up. So meditate when you're in the car waiting to pick your daughter up from ballet or you're in the carpool line. Or instead of going on Instagram, you know, meditate. And Mm -hmm. so now sometimes I'll meditate, you know, multiple times through the day for shorter periods and I'll end up getting more time in than I would have if i if I had a very rigid schedule, mm-hmm. but that idea of you know what you do builds so you referenced some of the travel that uh we've done together uh in a in a general way. Are there some experiences or some places that we've been or you've been that are particularly important to you or meaningful or or influential in in your life?
1: Well, i mean, I think. You add it all up and it's very meaningful. Um, you know, we went to China, I think, in two thousand and six, and it was before China really became the commercial superpower that it is today. And we watched how they built the buildings and the congestion in the roads and the pollution, and it really told me a lot about China, right? And we visited Ai Weiwei's Studio and and then later we saw how he was treated by the Chinese government. And you know, maybe I, I probably wouldn't go back to China because I don't think it was as fun as some of the other trips, but um, <laughs> uh, but it, it told me a lot. I, I think our trip to Japan was incredibly special. Um, it was very interesting to see the collections that these Japanese business people were able to collect art from all over the world and put them in these beautiful islands and and just incredibly curated, um, amazing, right? And then we went to Cuba and our hotel room smelled of mold and you know we were meeting all these amazing artists, both um, painters as well as singers and musicians, and we found that how much. Cuba values their artists and why there was such a drive to become an artist because you could leave the country and earn capital, you know, in other currencies besides Cubans. So and in Argentina, I think I think one couple got robbed the first minute we were there, right? And, and another person wanted to get some US dollars when they don't allow currency to go out of the country. So it just was really interesting to see the economics and the culture and the government all combined with, um, the art, you know, it, it, I mean, artists really tell a story, um, of, of what it's like to be under some certain types of governments. Uh, even the United Arab Emirates was, was interesting that way too. So, I mean, we went, I think the, at the UAE, we went to that museum. I can't, I am paid designed it. I don't remember what it's called, but there was one little piece that was, in this guarded room and the room must have cost millions and millions of dollars with this one little tiny piece on this pedestal. I was like, Oh, isn't that interesting. Right. But um, I, I think every place has been super interesting and it obviously makes a more rounded world citizen to travel to these places and to meet people of those countries. So I think they've all been equally
0: wonderful. I love your, Recollections of the places, and I remember being. So I think you were referencing just now the the National Museum in in Qatar, and <laughs> I remember we got off the plane there. We had flown from Dubai to Qatar, and there was a sandstorm. And you know, we we're all kind of covering our eyes and you know trying to keep our mouths closed. And and they were like, "Yeah, it's so unusual. We're so sorry that there's a sandstorm when you're here." And then I think you and I went on to India from there, and, and you found a newspaper and it said six week long sandstorm in Qatar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know that was funny. Anyway, that was great.
0: But the idea of how culture affects the creation of artwork and that nothing is isolated, no one is isolated, everything's connected. And, and that's one of the things that I love about artists. And art is that it's a reflection, particularly contemporary art, you know, of our time and space.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were a lot of boats in Cuba, a lot of boats in the art.
0: <laughs> Even wanting right. to get off. Yeah. Yeah. And things that you you wouldn't know if if you weren't there. And so seeing the art out of, out of where it's created is sometimes a loss, right? Because you don't know the context. And yeah. so having having the incredible privilege of going and experiencing to whatever extent the community and the circumstance from which the art came just gives so much more insight. I agree. I want to circle back to this idea of being a working mom and what some strategies were that you've used um, in order to to kind of do both. Every few years, there's articles that come out about, you know, how, how you can't do both, right? And the more of those articles I see, the the more it just spurs me on to, you know, be awesome at, at both. And I wonder what your, what your approach is.
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, I think the pandemic has really shown how important women are to the workforce and how important childcare is to women who are in the workforce. And, um, and so for, for me, you know, as a working mom, I hired a lot of good people—people people that I wanted my daughter to want to be like when she grew up—to um, uh, work for us. So we we would hire, you know, upperly mobile people who maybe didn't have a job for a while, and, and they would would help us. Um, and and I didn't feel guilty about it because I felt that I was a better mother if I. First of all, can make money for the family. And second of all, um, have my own personal satisfaction and not feel tied down to just one thing. Because one thing that is also in Buddhism is that change happens and nothing stays the same. And, you know, being a mom for a three-year-old is going to change from being a mom to a 12-year-old. And soon you're going to be an empty nester and, and you want to make sure you maintain whatever the core is, that's you. Right. And so Mm -hmm. you need Mm -hmm. strategies of help. And I think, um, you know, I'm I'm an invested investor in this company called urban sitter and what they're finding now after the pandemic is that big companies really want to offer childcare as a service to their employees because they realize it's very important to retain great people. And they've seen, you know, the problems that zoom and the pandemic has had on childcare. And so I think, you know, just get, get, quality childcare and it's either could be at your home or it could be in daycare. But, um, and then when you're with your family, be with your family, right? Um, You know, I try really hard at night to not be on email, to not be still at work. And I think in the Zoom culture that made it harder because we're all at home, but But to play Rummy Cube with my family or we all watch the same movie, like nobody's upstairs watching something and somebody's in the other room watching something else because that's not family time. So when you're actually with to get with your family, it's important to actually be together. And so we we do that. Um, And so, you know, just try not to beat myself up if I get it wrong, too. (laughs) So that's yeah, he's just being kind to yourself. You don't have to be perfect. And I think when my daughter was first born, I wasn't as kind to myself as I should have been. I wanted, I, I didn't feel like I was being that great at work. I didn't feel like I was being that great at home and I was doing everything not so great. So, you know, I made a few adjustments and, and decided to be kinder to myself. And when, a, when you have a baby, it's just plain hard regardless and just realize that like i tell people whatever you do don't get divorced when you have a baby because it's going to change you <laughs> know it's going to change so yeah yeah
0: what kind of practices do you have to be kind to yourself what works for you
1: i mean just you know if i if i make a mistake i just tell myself that's in the past and not to beat myself up about it um you know just kind of saying oh yeah and then Um, and then I try to exercise every day to be perfectly honest. I think that really helps, um, just feeling better about, you know, you just feel healthier when you exercise. Um, I also like to buy myself some new clothes every season. (laughs) (laughs) I get to treat myself to a new outfit for work every once in a while, which makes me feel good. Um, but just, just things like that, like just little things.
0: Yeah. I asked you earlier in the conversation in terms of how often you have to remind yourself that happiness is a choice. And now asking you about being kind to yourself and your response about exercising, it just underscores for me what I know to be true as well. And this is something you know that I, I talk to my kids about, particularly my son, who is really engaged at this point with a lot of daily practices and you, you have to do them every day and you have to do them when you feel good and you have to do them when you don't feel good because it, it makes a difference. And I woke up this morning not having exercised a lot of this week and it it affects everything. It really does. So getting outside, you know, being in nature, doing these things that that work. If I read something yesterday, I, I really like this guy, Chris Kresser, he's a functional medicine guy. And he was talking about how when we we don't prioritize ourselves and our well-being, that we make worse decisions because we're not valuing ourselves and um, and then other things somehow seem less important, which are important, and then it becomes cyclical.
1: Yeah. Well, you're going to be, I mean, your number one advocate is probably yourself in general. So (laughs) I just think it's important to watch out for, for yourself, make sure that you're okay. You know, and I, and I know you like me have a lot of people who depend on us and just another reason to stay
0: healthy. Yeah. Do you feel the weight sometimes of having a lot of people depend on you? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a
1: good question. Um, some Sometimes it's, it can be a little much, um, you know, or we're, we're the sandwich generation. Um, but I also feel like it's kind of an honor to take care of people yes. Uh, yes. to, you know, to be able to help my parents as they age and my, my daughter and my husband and, and, you know, there's reciprocity at, at all levels and maybe, some is in the past or some was in the future, you know, but it all balances out. But, you know, as long as there's reciprocity, I think it's it's kind of an honor.
0: Yeah. I like that word and I think it is too. And I've always thought that to whom much is given, much is expected. And that comes with, yeah, the privilege of of success.
1: So, Heidi, why don't we have conversations like this more often? we not on a podcast, just in general, maybe once a week.
0: Wouldn't that be nice? That's what I was thinking about this morning. That's what I was thinking about this morning is, you know, you referenced that the pandemic was great in some ways, right? In terms of time with family and and I have talked a lot about that too. For me it was so amazing to be able to have my kids back home because they went to boarding school at 14 both of them and to be able to have them back in the house and and to get to know them as young adults and just surprising things that that I wouldn't know if I didn't get to interact with them every day now. And as things have kind of geared back up and I took a full-time job again, I'm learning how how I want to reprioritize things and not fall back into old habits and patterns, a lot of which include not doing the things that I most enjoy doing, like talking to my friends. Right, and that's funny. I think and exercising and being in nature. We want to keep
1: yeah. the good that we got from the pandemic while giving away the bad, right? Like everybody realizes that, you know, having more time, being at home, you know, there's a lot of good there. And, you know, I think there's going to, the, the, back to that original question of the definition of work. I don't, I don't think I have the answer. I don't think anybody does yet. Right. I, I know we like to see each other and we like to be connected, but at the same time, we don't like to, you know, open up your calendar and realize that you're flying to New York tomorrow. And you didn't realize it, you know what I mean? It just, you want to be more in control, I think, than than probably in the past. work had been more
0: the one in control. The idea of control is super interesting. and I have that's been one of my life practices over the last few years is thinking about the spectrum between freedom and control and how I think I used to think that being in control would make me free. <laughs> and I've realized that by, I don't know, opening up more, allowing more, I guess, trust in the universe or like a larger plan that that's actually freeing. But, you know, for me, old habits die hard, maybe for everyone. And and I have so many positive habits. I have so many routines and rituals, but I definitely still have some old habits, which largely around work. Which I hope to continue to to work on.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it's macro and micro control. Like the universe takes the macro view and you can take the micro view of control. So that's probably works out both ways, right?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I don't know. I'm I part of the reason that I am doing these podcasts and having these conversations is because I feel like I have a lot to learn. And I feel like through Authentic and honest conversation, my life is better. There should be more of them, not just on the podcast.
1: <laughs> that's true. Well, that's good. I mean, one thing that I really admire about you is you don't, you would readily admit you don't have all the answers. And once you can realize that you can be so open to other ideas and other things, and that will always inevitably make anybody's life better, right? by just having an open mind and being willing to listen.
0: Yes. Yes. And that's why I have always loved art because everyone sees it differently. And I love as much as I love art, what I love even more than art is looking at art with other people and seeing what other people see. And I always learn something. Mm -hmm. I just got a flash in my head of us seeing the Jean-Michel Basquiat show at the, in, in New York at the foundation, Brooklyn, right? We went, we went in New York, uh, sorry. Yeah. In, um, on the Lower East side and um, the Brant foundation.
1: Oh, right. Okay. That was in the Lower East side. Okay.
0: Yeah. Oh, you know what? We may have gone to the Bosco show at the Brooklyn museum also. It's like the notebooks. So we may have seen that together as well. Hmm. Okay. Sonia. What do you dream about do I dream about? Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, well, I dream about, I mean, right now, top of mind is I dream about a democratic country, um, truly democratic. Um, mm. I dream about power matching our population. Um, I think we'll have a much happier, fair, easy society. Um, um, you know, especially when you think about women in leadership and, and people of color in leadership, um, I just think a lot of problems will be solved. A lot of pain will be reduced. Um, you know, and, you know, I, I actually try to live every day, just one day at a time um, and try to enjoy that one day to the fullest <laughs> and not to have regrets about how I spent that day. Um And so I I try to be very present um, and satisfied. But I do care a lot about our country and I do care a lot about our democracy. And I think that's, I think America is a really great country. And I just think that's the thing that makes it very special. And, you know, I I dream about um, having that democracy stay in place.
0: Do you think that growing up in Virginia, influenced your sense of patriotism and, and feelings about democracy?
1: Um, I think so. I I would say that, um, you know, I'm a daughter of immigrants and, um, and I've seen what America can do in the lives of immigrants because my grandparents immigrated from Norway. They didn't even have, um, High school education, much less a college education. And um, my father ended up becoming a member of the National Academy of Engineering and getting a doctorate from Berkeley. And, you know, his mother was so proud, but it just showed what America can really do for people. Um, so that definitely influenced me. And then, of course, I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is the home of Thomas Jefferson, and as one of the founding fathers. And um he of course is deeply flawed because he owned slaves. Um, but his political ideals about democracy and um and all men are created equal, probably all people should be created equal. But um, but I think that influenced me quite a bit. And and if you look at the story of the founding of our country, you know there's a bunch of people against the government that actually turned it around and and made what I think is a a pretty, pretty great um, system of government. So, so I would say, yes, I would say yes, but I think probably being in being very in tune to being an immigrant, probably more so.
0: Hmm. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, what a wonderful person you are and how lucky (laughs) they, that you
1: are, how lucky everyone is that you're actually doing these podcasts and, and asking the right questions. I think you're an incredible um, conversationalist and the questions are really great and you do it in such a natural way. So just thank you for
0: asking me. Thank you for saying yes. I mean, it probably goes without saying, but I am at the point in my life where I don't actually want anything to go unsaid how much I admire and respect you and how grateful I am for your friendship to me personally and my family, but also for all that you do in the world. You know, we didn't even talk about today, all all these other things we could have talked about Broadway angels, um, Project Glimmer, Glimmer, you know, um, but the fact that you live your values, I find really inspiring and I want to acknowledge that. So oh, Thank you.
1: you. Well, Project Glimmer had a really great year. We served a lot of girls um, because COVID really did affect the lives of many uh, girls and foster kids and kids that lost a lot of their s- social safety nets because they had to stay wherever they lived. And um, we decided to turn it from a nice to have program to a must have program. And we just went in full gear. So I'm very proud of Project Limmer. Thanks for bringing that up
0: absolutely i remember when it it started and the ask that you were making to get it going um and it's it's a really interesting model because the original ask that i remember was for jewelry that we had people had that we weren't using and it's such a smart way to get people involved in something which is to to make a simple and small ask and then to get people invested in something and then the ask can shift and change and increase, right? But to get people's attention in a crowded space, the space of philanthropy is hard and you've done a great job.
1: Well, thanks. I mean, our our mission there is to inspire every girl to fulfill her full potential. You know, we just want everyone to be able to fulfill their full, full potential. And, you know, in the beginning, we just did our gifts and goods program and now we've got mentoring and we have um, career um, role modeling, and we work with major brands to help save the environment by not um, landfilling old products or you know products I don't want anymore. And now we give them away. So it's been it's been a fun ride. It's been fun to use my venture capital business model kind of experience to run a nonprofit, which has actually turned out pretty well. So it's good.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks for speaking with me today. I'm super excited Thank to see you. you next week. Yes, yes, I am too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Conversations About Art is part of Art. This episode was produced by Simonilla. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every other Tuesday with new episodes. Thanks so much for listening.